and welcome to episode four of the Salesforce Posse podcast, which was recorded on the 12th. It wasn't. 11th. <laughs> you need more caffeine. I need more caffeine. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, recorded on the 11th of July, 2019. <laughs> on this episode, we look at the post-mortem following permission Geddon. We look at automated code reviews and Loop has some lightning web component tips. I do indeed. A lot, a of, lot them. of them. Yeah, yeah quite a few, so cool. stay tuned. Okay, so first up is Permission Geddon, the results. Yes, so Salesforce have finally published the RCA for this. And what is an RCA? Root cause analysis. Ah. So they've provided a detailed root cause analysis with the timelines and what happened, along with, you know, why didn't we, uh, what did we do Prior to implementing this testing, what kind of, uh, sorry, prior to implementing this script, what kind of testing was done and who was involved in review. So two things stand out. I mean, we've talked about this to death in the last podcast. So if uh, listeners are interested in this, they should go back and check check out our previous episode. Two things stand out in this RCA, though, uh, that I'd like to highlight. The first one was for a big database update script, the review felt quite lightweight. Yeah. Um, it was so, just, uh, it was basically a developer that did the script. Yeah. Then it was reviewed by a an architect? senior architect. Se- senior architect. Uh, and then they did have to do um, unit testing on it, but it was lacking its negative tests, which is a common problem I have every day, I think. When I, it is. When I review code. Yeah. Before we talk about the unit test, the other thing in that review was. For some reason, they thought that this didn't require staggered execution, which, was, yeah, which, which is, means that you don't have to implement it one pod at a time. So they kind of release that script to all pods simultaneously. That's yeah. kind of it's implied. And also, it didn't require any automated testing. Or well, yeah, by the looks of things as well. So, which is a bit odd because if it's a, if it's a okay for an emergency fix, obviously you may have a faster route to production. Mm-hmm. But something like this, where it was just upgrading permissions on the par.user permissions within Salesforce, it sounds like it wasn't critical. (laughs) Therefore, you know, the default should be a staggered release. Makes sense. Yep. That's what I would have thought, unless it's a critical fix, like you said. The other thing that you mentioned was unit tests. Now, we are all... We've all been there, shall we say. We're all guilty of this, (laughs) where we test the positive flow, the happy path. Salesforce have admitted that they tested the happy path in here, but they did not create any negative test cases. And this kind of highlights... They say it's lacking, so they lack. might, but it wasn't to the yeah, degree Possibly. that they should have had. Yeah. Uh, maybe, yes. Yeah. So they, really, they didn't have enough. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I'm assuming none. Yeah. But it's possible that they only did very little negative... Uh, testing. So what that means is you test for things that will break your functionality uh, at a high level and Celsius didn't do that and that's why they never identified that this script was also modifying other permissions. They only looked for a result where the script was modifying the permissions that they intended to modify. And this is quite a common common problem for all developers, you know, I'm happy to admit that we've all, you know, yeah. we're all guilty of that. this. Uh, <laughs> but you, you learn and you start creating negative test cases. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to our next topic. You know, there, 
It's about I standards. Think actually, no, there was one other thing that I noticed, actually, that I didn't realize was they had flashback technology. Oh, what's that? So basically, they've got a six-hour window mm-hmm. when they can flash back the database back to a point in time. Oh, really? Um, yeah, which was I didn't know. But unfortunately for this scenario, the six-hour window had elapsed before... They identified the problem. Yeah, they didn't have time to go, ah, oh, flashback is a... You know, it could have been a solution to it. Oh, that's and so the window elapsed and they couldn't they had to use a different uh, recovery strategy. Is this their own homemade technology? Or? No, it's actually, they say it's a, a database vendor. Flashback. Yeah, six hour window. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, so it's quite good. But all in all, I yes. think that that's a, that's a great example of an RCA. You know, they basically came out and said, uh, you know, we we messed up, but... We'll learn from this and we'll be more careful next time when we do yeah. database scripts. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's good. Yeah, they're going to definitely be more careful, I think. <laughs> when something goes wrong, yeah, I think maybe overly uh, yeah. <laughs> protective. But yeah. talking, talking about being careful, uh, you know, we mentioned negative test, uh, unit test cases. Over here at Azure, we've, uh, we have uh, coding standards, and I'm sure you also have some sort of coding yep. standards for the projects that you work on. And it's easy to kind of mention the standards that write both positive and negative test cases. But how do you kind of enforce that kind of thing or check for it in real time? Yeah. Sometimes these are the things that get missed during peer review or code review yeah. even. I, kind so, of, I generally have a rule that for every one positive test, you have two negative tests. Okay, that's yeah. a good rule to have. But, yeah. How good are the quality of those negative tests or positive tests? <laughs> That's a whole different, yeah. Okay, yeah. So we were looking at tools on, on you know, how to kind of uh, check this automatically. So that you take the human element out of yeah. this. And we looked at a couple of tools. There's CodeScan, there's Apex BMD, uh, that you get, that's, which is a plugin that work, allows you to check the, the that's code. That's the open source. Yeah, it's the open source. Oh, it, it? Yeah, yeah. So Apex well. BMD is uh, open source. Um, and then we came across Clayton. And as part of that, uh, I saw a blog post by Lorenzo, who's one of the founders uh, of Clayton. So Clayton has been around for two years or so. So they've been uh, analyzing code, and recently they've hit a sweet milestone of uh, 10.2 billion lines of code analyzed. That is pretty good for a two plus or two or three years old company. Absolutely. So, and uh, Lorenzo kind of put a high level analysis of the code that they've analyzed, and quite a few things in there are shocking but not surprising, you know. Uh, so they found that the most common flaw in the code is data leaks. So stuff like CRUD and FLS is not implemented correctly, you know, in, especially in Visual Force, when you kind of query data from Apex Controller, which is returned as a string, uh, if it's not, if we don't check in the Apex Controller whether the user has field-level security or not, then Visual Force won't, won't enforce it. Because uh, as far as Visual Force is concerned, if you're returning that data as string, there's no way of knowing what field it is. But then there are ways around this where if you're actually using stuff like input text or output field or something like that, then Visual Force knows that field and it'll then enforce, enforce it, yeah. it. But most of the time it doesn't do that. They also found a lot of instances of insecure direct object references. Indirect access that you unwittingly give to users. So for example, if you have a page where you show custom account information and the page uses the ID for the account, 
a hacker with enough determination and time would kind of manipulate that ID record, uh, ID number, and play with some numbers and get access to the account record that they don't, they might not have access Which to. Which is what the Salesforce certification validation was for ages until they fixed it. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You I didn't know basically that. just go through all the different IDs, and then you could just get yeah, access yeah. to other people. So that's how some of the tools on the internet for oh, this is the list of all the oh, brilliant. Yeah, there you so go. they fixed that. So data leaks was the was the most common thing. Uh, what are the other things that uh, did you read the blog post? Yeah, yeah I did. I think yeah. I, I thought it was quite interesting where they found uh, basically they found one serious security flaw per thirty six thousand lines of code. So it's basically an average of two organized orgs out of five had oh, wow. a serious security flaw in it, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but also I thought it could because they they've analyzed ten point two billion lines of code. Yeah, and I've actually recently found out. There are 850 million lines of Apex code across all orgs in Salesforce. Oh. Which I thought was quite interesting. So uh, out of the 850 million lines of code, they have analyzed 10.2 billion lines. Well, obviously, repeated scanning. Uh, But also what I found was quite interesting is, I don't know, the blog post, I think, is slightly flawed in the sense of, Actually, if you've kind of got that predisposition of wanting to analyze your code, you're going to use these tools to analyze it. But those companies that are not interested in it, who've probably got worse code, aren't yeah. going to use these tools. It's, it's not representative of the entire uh, implementation all over the world, I suppose. Exactly, it's yeah. a representation of people using Clayton. And like you said, these people are probably predisposed to good standards and good hygiene when it goes to it comes to writing code. So it's, I think yeah, it so could be worse. May I think it's got to be worse, worse than that. It, we just don't know to what degree. Yeah, but still a good insight into uh, into how people are generally writing code and it kind of reaffirms yeah. the stuff that we know. And I think uh, there was another stat on that actually they had was uh, 42% of implementations use dummy unit tests. <laughs> <laughs> that is. Yes, yes, that's another common thing we see yeah, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I still remember the unit test methods which, no, the classes which have a million rows of line and then one unit test method. Uh, which, Dummy lines doesn't yeah, mean yeah. anything, doesn't do anything, but just to increase, increase that, that code, code coverage. coverage. Shh, don't say that. People will start doing it. No, <laughs> no. If they, uh, yeah, yeah. If that is, I mean, Salesforce should have an automatic technique to kind of block that, something like that. You should have built and also, something. I think, you know, like just enforcing the fact you must have an assert in a test method. Yeah. You know, it's a simple thing. Again, but there are, why there are, would a test method ever not have an assert? I don't think that's enough, though, because even if you enforce that fact, people oh, yeah, will just, still work, they'll just say, again. Yeah, assert yeah. equals true, true. There <laughs> yeah, you go. Exactly, yeah. Job done. You want an assert? You've oh, got actually, an assert. That is another bit of the dogway I say. On the assert, yeah. the comment is not required. Yeah. So you get a, oh, this assert has failed. It says it's false when it should be true. Great. But why? What the hell does that mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, well, anyway, well yeah. unit testing is one of those things. It's it's like flossing, right? Mm. You you know it's good for you. You know, mm. otherwise, if you don't floss, you you build plaque over time and stuff like that. Uh, but still, you're not motivated to do it yeah. uh, because you can get by. And uh, unit test is just like that. It's it's a it's a thing of dev culture in mm. a team where it's driv- where you build a culture and a process where you encourage these things. Uh, and you give the team the time and the bandwidth 
to kind of make sure that these things get done mm. and you improve test coverage the right way, uh, have a peer review process, which kind of re- has a checklist think, of yeah, things. Yeah, because the, these code review tools could only do so much. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And you get false positives, and you get, and, and, or even put in bad practice. Because I, uh, I remember reviewing some code once where they, it was obvious they were running a, a code review tool. Yeah. And basically, you could tell that one of those rules was you must not have any strings in, because essentially you've got to use labels yep. for translations. Sure. But they'd taken that so far, they were doing a, um, a query. Yeah. And the select and the where and the from were all labels. No way. Okay, yeah. that's, yeah. And it was like, it makes the code just unreadable. Exactly. Even there's, the object names, and it was just ridiculous. This that trade trade off between readability exactly. and extensibility. So, yeah. how far do you take this? And sometimes you just have to use common sense, really. Yeah. I mean, for in this example that you mentioned, that can be a string. It's okay yeah. because if you know you you don't expect to change the select stuff the object that often. API name's not going to change. No. It doesn't not required for translation. You know, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. But. Um, the other thing that I noted in, in that post was the uh, was that ISVs are much better at security, but I don't think that's by oh, choice. That's right. Yeah. No, but that, again, that's not by choice because they have to be exactly, because of yeah. the initial security review that Salesforce enforced on yeah. all uh, applications that and are listed on, on AppExchange. Then the ongoing then security, the ongoing security yeah. review. But then what I found out based on the app that I have on the AppExchange is that they don't do the review for every patch that you upload, okay. but they do it every couple of years, yeah. I think, which is which is still fine, you know. Because I think it's also if, yeah, and also if a, a customer kind of highlights an issue maybe with an app, they'll do it an ad hoc. But that's right, yeah. yeah. So that that's not a surprise. I think there should be some sort of, I know that um, using these tools are useful, but also there should be more uh, talks or more blog posts about how to improve the quality of the code. I don't mm. see that many. I mean, uh, I, when, when we go to conferences and stuff, there are one or two talks around this, but I think there should be more around how to create yeah. maintainable and secure code, especially around security. Developers, they're not, most of the developers I talk to don't know about the o, OWASP principles, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the principles around uh, writing secure code. And this, these are some of the things that you don't worry about it because you have other things to worry about, mm. like can we deliver this stuff uh, for the deadline, so mm. so all of these things, I think there needs to be more education yeah. around this to make the developers familiar with these strategies to build a maintainable and secure code base. Yeah, absolutely, and also it's kind of important for the platform as a whole um, because when releases, major releases come out, Salesforce are running all your unit tests they to are. see if you know what they've changed has broken you know your org, and also it's now available to ISVs. Is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Which is quite interesting. So, uh, yeah, so the hammer tests, yeah. you can now select your customers' orgs that you want to run your new package on as a test, which will run all their tests in a kind of secure environment. Mm-hmm. And you can see the results uh, to see if your app is going to fail or not, basically. Oh, that is useful. Well. I did not know that. Yeah. So I shall use that for my app. So what else did you find in there, Francis? Um, so I think the, the other one which was which was quite interesting, was that uh, 57% of developers mm-hmm. were more likely to address performance over robustness of code. 
performance is easy to understand. You want uh, everything to be faster, but robustness well, is kind of a very broad term. Yeah, I, d- I don't know what... It could mean different things. It could mean extensibility, maintainability, all of the different illities yeah. that are not performance-related. But uh, again, that's a broad topic. Uh, like everything, you have to balance these things, isn't it? And there's always the the threat of missing deadlines over our heads where we have to kind of balance all of these uh, yeah. illities. With- <laughs> <laughs> but then it kind of makes sense because like, if you have got a bit of bad code in the org yeah. and you've hit a you know, Sockle yeah. 101 or whatever it may be, you know, you're going to fix the performance, aren't you? In our profession, technical debt is just part of the game. Yeah. So it's all, about, it's all about how do we kind of go back and get rid of that debt is the key thing as part of your process. I think it I will... I have actually, I've in our kind of, kind of the rule book of development, mm-hmm. I suppose one of them is being a good corporate citizen and leaving the code better than then. you found it. And that is just basically one of the tenants that we use. But. That is a very good principle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So if you if you guys are interested, uh, it would be, we would put the link in the show notes and you should totally check out this, yeah, this blog post, uh, which kind of talks about what Clayton has learned by analyzing or scanning 10.2 billion lines of Salesforce code. All right, on to the next one. What else is happening in the ecosystem, Francis? So there's a big thing happened. It was a little while ago now. It's kind of a week late on doing this podcast. (laughs) In internet timelines, it's it's quite old. So basically Salesforce buys Tableau. Wow. Which I was so shocked to hear that because... I didn't. Ex- well, it's unexpected news, given that Tableau is a direct competitor to Einstein Analytics. Yeah, which, in a way. Yeah. Although it's quite interesting that it was on uh, flagged as a potential acquisition. Was it back in 2016? Uh, really? But by then they already had that uh, Einstein Analytics I acquisition. Know. So I would have thought that they would just focus all their time and money and effort into building out the capabilities on Einstein Analytics instead of acquiring another the big only company. thing I can think because essentially the big difference is on-prem versus cloud. Tableau, I think, did they have a cloud version? I think it's all on-premise, isn't it? Or well, I've only ever used it on-prem. <laughs> so I have to say that I've never used Tableau. Oh, so really? Yeah. So. so it's a good tool for yeah. data visualization. And they've got, you can quite easily do mashups to Salesforce using it. Because if you're sucking all the data out of Salesforce into Tableau and mashing it with other internal data, mm-hmm. then you could quite easily just put a URL or a kind of an iframe embedded in, in Salesforce to pass certain IDs through to show specific information based on the racket, re- record you're on in Salesforce, okay. which is quite cool. And also they've got a tool called um, Sparkler, right. which basically... If you're uh, to might kind of make the authentication between Tableau and Salesforce a lot more simpler, um, as well as passing data backwards or passing data through from Salesforce into Tableau, and it uses Canvas, uh, you know, to do the authentication and stuff. So, which is quite a cool little tool. Oh, that's uh, good. And I'm assuming after the acquisition, all of these things will be native in Salesforce over time. Yes, eventually, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think cases. to be honest, I most of the times when I've used Tableau and done integrations hadn't even used Sparkler because you're using single sign-on on both tools. You've kind of already got the authentication. And if you're pulling the data out into Tableau anyway, 
most of the time it's just a URL parameter or two just to kind of filter the data in the report mashed up within Salesforce yeah. and it kind of does the job there. Well, I'm, um, I'm interested to find out how the Einstein Analytics roadmap now kind of overlaps or merges with yeah. Tableau I think in the future. So. Yeah, at the moment they say, yeah, they're kind of carrying on, obviously, yeah. with both products. Um, I think it is, a, it is a different product in some ways. Is it? Well, in the sense that it is on-prem. Because their main bread and butter for Tableau is visualization. So they, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing they, they've been around since 2003 or 2004. So they've kind of perfected the art of visualization of ingesting all of that data, yeah. which uh, Einstein Analytics is relatively, not relatively, but kind of, you know, it's new uh, yeah. compared to Tableau timelines. So I'm assuming that they would probably take the best of Tableau and use the best of the, uh, because Einstein Analytics also has other capabilities like artificial intelligence, machine learning, butter, yeah, and all of that. So they would kind of merge the output of Einstein Analytics and give it to Tableau for visualization because that's where it excels. That's kind of how I see this happening. But or it might be again, just, just take, they're just taking expertise of Tableau. You know, you've now bought essentially pretty, yeah. a massive load of you know experts in that visualization space yeah. uh, that could actually help improve um, Analytics Cloud. Yeah, the other thing that Celsius gets out of this is they they've recently well, Mark Benioff announced that he's going to make Seattle as the second headquarter mm. for Salesforce, so they get a real good piece of real estate there, yeah. uh, along with all the developers who live in or near Seattle. So, from a talent acquisition point of view, it makes sense for Salesforce. Seattle is a big place and a great ecos has a great uh, ecosystem for developers. So that kind of justifies the high price that Salesforce have paid for the acquisition. But mm. $15.7 billion is still a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even, Ooh, if, yeah, even if you yeah. consider the, the stock buy, still a lot of money. Uh, didn't Salesforce stocks go, uh, shares go down after the news? Yes, it did. It was quite interesting. But then, yeah, so uh, CRM stocks traded down 4.5%. So maybe people thought that $15.7 billion was a little bit too much to pay. Um, who knows? Um, but we'll only see this play out in the next couple of years, like any other big acquisition that Celsius has done in the past. So we might come back to this topic again in the future, once they've kind of worked out the strategy of how to integrate Tableau with other product suites that they have. Absolutely. And also, um, actually, back in 2016... Mm -hmm. um, there was actually a leaked document that came out, which is now kind of quite sort of the Wall Street Journal and uh, basically potential uh, acquisitions that Salesforce would make. Uh, and on that was Tableau. There was also Demandware. All right. Uh, which they have acquired. Which they have acquired as well. Mm -hmm. uh, there was LinkedIn, which obviously they lost out to Microsoft. Microsoft. And so the only one left on it is uh, ServiceNow. To be fair, I'm surprised they haven't acquired it already. <laughs> yeah. Aren't they an investor in ServiceNow? We shall see how this plays out in the next couple of years. Okay, so next in the news, uh, we had hit a big milestone this month with 1,000 trailblazer community groups across the world. Wow. 1,000 trailblazer yep. groups. That's of which 300 groups meet up every month. 300? Yeah. 
Oh, that's quite active. Uh, that's that's very good because when we started back in the day, back in the day, back yeah. in the day, in the pulse of <laughs> the end of the tequila, te- <laughs> the tequila. It was uh, actually around the corner here in Liverpool Street. Where is it? I don't yeah. even know where it was. It, it's it? just a, a decent, half decent pub. It's <laughs> yeah. around the corner here in Liverpool Street where we met. That was actually 1.2 meetup because the first meetup was with Wes and a couple of other guys from Tequila in a pub. Yeah, we were just talking it, yeah. about this thing. And then after that, they were like, let's do it properly. Yeah. So you see, I, came, I did the first one, presented the first one, and yeah. then didn't come for the next ones. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah. But well, um, uh, recently, we, at the last meetup, the Doug meetup. I know. You, where, you have stepped down. I have. I have, Francis. Which yeah. is very upsetting. <laughs> Well, after after eight years, I decided I that uh, I should probably step down and give the next generation a time, try <laughs> a chance to run the the meetup group. So Amnon Groovy has uh, kindly agreed to to be a co organizer. Well, from the whole community, thank you so much for spending eight years. <laughs> thank you building the Dev User Group in London. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Uh, I had fun. It yeah. was. Uh, it was. It has you know, was, grown and grown and grown. It has grown, yeah. and partially it's been. It's in the location. You know, yeah. location, location, location. Absolutely. Because uh, it was based out of London, and sales was grew very fast in in the UK, mm-hmm. and London was ripe for just uh, for for growth. And I just took advantage of that, and there were a lot of uh, consultancies and customers in and around London that kind of enabled me to find both speakers and sponsors yeah. and stuff. And obviously, I had a great uh, bunch of co-organizers around me as well. So, yeah. so all of that kind of right place, right time kind of thing. Yeah. So, good luck to Doug, and I'm sure they'll grow and grow. I'm hoping that they'll double their numbers <laughs> the next eight years. Uh, but yeah, given where else is heading, they're going back to this news item. One thousand trailblazer community groups is great for any uh, yeah, organization. Absolutely. So, how many community groups do we have here in the UK? You, you were going to ask that. Yeah. So in the UK, oh, that's tricky. Quite a few. I did put it in the London's calling. So in London, we have the developer user group, admin user group, marketing user group, product user group, the analytics analytics user group, ISV group. Who am I? Non-profit. Non-profit. Do they, they, they meet, they don't meet regularly though. They meet. They do it. I think it's every three months or so. Every three months. Okay. Non-profit. Is it government cloud? Government? Oh yeah. Government, Government cloud as well. So, yeah, yeah we, there's quite a we lot. are spoiled yeah. for choice here in yeah. London, to be honest. Uh, but then we also have quite a, f- um, quite a few meetups outside of London, uh, yeah. meetup groups. Yeah, so Bristol, Reading, Bristol. Brighton, Phil Walton and the Northern yeah. user groups up there. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Scotland as well. Scotland as well. <laughs> but if, you, if you're based in London and if you're not going to these meetups, you're missing out on a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think I, I quite like them. One of the things I do like them, actually, you know, the students that do my e-learning and stuff, I kind of say, look, go to the user groups because it's like a shot in the arm to keep you kind of motivated to learn and continue. Um, and that's why I love going because it's kind of like that, oh, seeing new stuff, talking mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of getting that kind of encouragement and that kind of wanting to continue um, to learn the platform. So It's also a great place to network if you're starting out. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, it's a good place, especially if you, uh, if you give a talk. It kind of uh, increases your profile. Uh, people know about you and they automatically assume that you know stuff. 
uh, you may or may not know that thing, but uh, you know, it kind of raises your profile and it's a great place to network to just kind of find, uh, make new connections. And compared to San Francisco and other places, London is still relatively a small, tight-knit community. Mm. And like I said, there is a lot of growth here, but and there's that that's why there's a lot of demand, but not enough supply. So you should also bring your friends and other colleagues who are not part of the Ohana yet to be to, to, to these meetups. So they'll kind of drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. The rest of us. Absolutely. What other news do we have in the, uh, that's related to community groups, Francis? Well, we have uh, Ladies Be Architects are now a CIC in the UK and also Can they've you... registered their trademark. So Ladies Be Architects was basically founded by uh, Gemma Beth and it's co-led by um, Charlie Says and Sunny... Susanna Kate. Susanna Kate. Sorry, Sunny Dowlog. I'm looking at the Twitter profiles, you see. It's always very confusing. (laughs) But it's actually a really great resource um, for uh, architect talks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they kind of follow loosely the kind of the certifications. They kind of do talks on that. Um, They've also got uh, Matt Morris and uh, Gemma doing kind of a mock CTA exams. So uh, basically getting a solution or getting a, some requirement spec and then kind of whiteboarding as if it was an exam situation for the CTA, which is quite interesting. Um, and yeah, just loads of uh, other talks. But yeah, so now they're a CIC, um, which is a community interest something. Group? Charity? Charity, maybe. It's not quite a full-blown charity and mm-hmm. it's not kind of a limited company. Uh, it kind of sits in the middle, so you kind of have the flexibility of kind of the both worlds a little bit without having the all the rigor that comes with having a charity. Nice, that's a great uh, milestone for them. But yeah, that's really cool, and they've also trademarked uh, Lady B Architects, which is brilliant as well. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, that's really and it's a really great resource. So uh, check them out on Twitter, Arc Ladies, uh, and from there, yeah, there's ArcLadies.com as well, and uh, which has links to the YouTube, to the YouTube videos yeah. that you mentioned. Okay. That's cool. So are these talks geared towards all all architect certifications like system architect, application architect, or is it just focused on CTA? They've got CTA. it's gen no, it's not just CTA. They've got some talks on you know different aspects. Um so security and visibility, I think there's a couple. Uh um but yeah, it's not too bad. Um Usually, kind of, there's kind of like almost exam cram videos on what to learn for. Got it. Uh, and actually, there's a great video I did my um, mobile design architect mm-hmm. um, a little while ago, a couple of months ago. And then they've got a great video on, uh, yeah, it's not that long, but it gives you an idea of, you know, what's a hybrid app, what's, uh, you know, great for just a quick review before the exam. So that's good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, no, it's quite good. Didn't you complete all of the architect exams recently? Yes, I did. What's your tip? for preparing for those exams? My tip, my top tip. I think... So the, are these exams, so let me phrase this this way, are these exams something that you kind of memorize a bunch of things and then they would ask you specific items? Like, for example, very very silly example, where will you find settings to set custom yeah. settings? You know, <laughs> I, which, which I yeah, find a bit yeah, yeah. silly. Or are these exams more scenario-based? Most of them are, yeah higher level scenario based so um there some of them are a little bit odd and jump really deep right. for some reason 
to go and go to basically set to up code. set up level and code. Okay? Yeah, yeah, which is fair. I which suppose. is fair. Yeah, yeah. For some of the things which I don't necessarily agree with <laughs> in some cases, but um, yeah, generally it's a lot more scenario based. It's a lot more. Um, yeah, a higher level, really. Um, so, for example, for the mobile um, exam, you needed to know how uh, the mobile apps can store data right. and what happens if, you know, you log out of the app, what happens to that database within the app and things like that based on a hybrid scenario, based on a, a natives or a, a, a app as well. Um, which, But then again, you don't need to know the code on how you put data in and out mm-hmm. um so it's kind of like a slightly higher level um which actually actually it's quite interesting do you see the tweet recently i think actually it was from Gemma, mm-hmm. and she actually asked the questions what do you think about functional or non-developers people becoming ctas here's my opinion yeah okay. and these are my opinions if if Gemma means by functional, she means not someone who doesn't have developer or programming background, because functional is quite a broad term. You know, functional actually means different things. You could be just a functional architect that does business, uh, that who's an expert or subject matter expert in the business side of things. But if she means someone who's, who doesn't have a development background can become a CTA, the answer is absolutely. To become a CTA... Again, caveat, I'm not a CTA. <laughs> I've never taken this. I've passed the stage two multiple yeah. choice yeah, so exam, yeah, but yeah. I've never tried the board exam. So I'll caveat that with this. And I'm sure a lot of CTAs out there who might be listening to this podcast uh, might have a better answer than this. But my view is you don't need to have programming experience, but you do need to have a certain technical knack yeah. in looking at the world. So you need to be technical minded. You need to have experience and understanding of all of the different abstractions that we deal with. You know, you may not need to know what all of the ones and zeros are at the metal level, but you need to understand how a computer is built. So you know that at the most base level, you have ones and zeros, all these uh, transistors switching one and zero that kind of runs the world or a computer and the internet. But on top of that, you have the the transistors on top of that you have the logic machines as an abstraction then you have the operating system as an abstraction then the browser and the IDE and how the program runs so a system is composed of multiple components you need to understand how these components relate to each other and if you kind of get a grasp and understanding and I picked up an example of an operating system I'm just saying in general for Salesforce if you have an understanding of how a particular solution can, how a particular problem can be solved using the different Salesforce components, then you are closer to becoming CTA. In fact, being a non-developer gives you an advantage because you don't, uh, a developer who's trying to be a CTA, who doesn't have enough architecture experience, who doesn't see, who has not seen the big picture for a while, would get bogged down by details when they are in front of a review board yeah. where they're looking for high-level concepts and understanding of different... And how to communicate design. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So they, they, they want you to understand, they want you to take the problem and then create a high-level design that would satisfy ideally 100% of the problem, but then kind of be have all of these abilities, you know, mm. is scalable, scalable, uh, performant, 
maintainable, extensible, and plus secure. and secure. Yeah. Yes, that's a big one. So, in fact, not having programming background, but understanding all of these different components will give you a edge over someone who's actually got a lot of programming experience because they might get bogged down by yeah. too much detail. I, I, I think of it. Detail. I think of it as basically, as if you think of it as a general architect. Yeah, like a solution across multiple platforms doesn't have to be Salesforce. It's kind of, they've got this mile wide, kind of couple of inch deep knowledge. Yes. They don't have that really deep knowledge. But then a Salesforce CTA is essentially the similar, similar approach, except for in Salesforce, you go a bit deeper. Correct. Yeah. So it's not still, it's not all the way down the stack, but you still got that kind of you know, foot deep, maybe a couple of inches. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's how I see it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be, it's useful to view at the optics. The way I look at this is if you're a generalist rather than a specialist, you have a better chance of being becoming a CTA. Because if, let's say you are a JavaScript specialist, you know every JavaScript library and you can kind of, you know, all the quirks of the JavaScript language and you, you build the best lightning components or aura components. You won't, if you go for a CTA exam, uh, without having the experience of building large-scale applications where you understand how integration works, how, uh, how you, how, for example, microservices architecture works mm. or what's a monolithic architecture, uh, different types of design patterns where you have solved different types of problems. If, if you have experience of solving different classes of problems in your career, you stand a better chance of uh, passing the CTA exam because the scenario that they present to you you would then start applying familiar patterns from the yeah. past. But if all you know is how to build the best Lightning Web component, that won't give you enough information or uh, that won't give you enough enough of a canvas to kind of build the entire yeah. solution. And I, I think also, you know, when it comes back, coming back to the question, you know, do you think functional uh, people can become CTAs? I actually think that anybody can become a CTA, really. Because it all, all it does is takes time and learning, really. That's it, yeah? So really, anybody can become it. You know, 10 years ago, I knew nothing about Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a CTA, but I'm an architect, architecting solutions. Mm -hmm. So it's taken 10 years, but I've got there. Um, so it's that kind of... <clears throat> so when, when it's like, do you think a functional people can become CTAs? Well, absolutely. You know, it's just becomes... It's just knowledge and time to become, you know, become one. Yep. Uh, and depending on where you start, you may have more knowledge that you need to take. But also, I think if you're thinking of a CTA, don't think of it as a CTA. That you're, you're got, don't think of the goal as being the CTA. Think of the goal is a cloud architect or an architect. Mm -hmm. Because then you're including all that other knowledge, which is, doesn't come through in any of the other certifications. You know, you don't talk about firewalls in any of the other, you know, architect certifications, but you do need to know that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I think it's important to not have the goal as a CTA. 100%. Yeah. I agree with that. Talking to other CTAs, what they've said is the other important component before you appear for a CTA exam is experience. Yeah. You must have experience building medium to large applications yeah. on Salesforce. Without that you will flounder because it's CTA exam is notoriously difficult. The only reason it's difficult is because people trying to do the CTA exam don't have enough uh, experience 
to actually answer all the questions that the board puts forward to them. In fact, you know, in our, unfortunately, in our industry, Salesforce industry, people who have two years of Salesforce experience put architect on their resumes. It's quite hard to filter and sort no, out No, I've got people. all the certifications. I'm an architect. You, you are, but, you know, a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but is that the, the other it's, flip side is yeah. I've got all the certifications. Oh, that's it, yeah. I am, I'm now obviously an architect now. Yeah, exactly. It's it's quite difficult to, because we have, again, it's a supply and demand thing. Yeah. People who have even passing knowledge of, they might have done one integration project and that kind of leads them to believe that they could architect applications and that's why they like say, oh, I'm an architect. Yeah, Which, and I, I think, but also it's like, again, it comes back to the CTA isn't the goal. It's, yeah. The, the goal is to being a really good, well-rounded architect that you can describe and design a really great solution. Um, and in some, I quite like like, Prince two certification, like project management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of in the kind of like the main exam, practitioner exam. It's one of the key things is saying when. And actually, in the enterprise Togad nine, it's similar enterprise architecture. It's at what point do you say actually stop and start again? Yeah, or this isn't the right approach. So it's understanding when. And for me, yes, the CTA is all about building a Salesforce solution. But as an architect as a whole, yeah. is to say, actually, this thing that you want to do, you know what? Salesforce isn't the best solution for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's use this solution and actually just then link them together or whatever it may be. Uh, so you get some of that information to Salesforce. So it's understanding when not to use Salesforce. I know it goes against the rules, <laughs> <laughs> but also when to use it as well. True. I think you hit the nail on the head on that one. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I think I would say is um, Salesforce actually do say that even though you've got the two tracks, application architect and system architect, now the system architect is a bit more developy in some ways, although I did get some code questions in the application architect route, which was quite interesting, which kind of goes back to my really does have to go that to that deep, which is quite interesting. But they do actually say on the website that... Um, when you've completed, you know, one of those tracks, you then have to submit to request to um, start your uh, CTA kind of experience or whatever. And they basically say, if you've done both tracks in their in Salesforce's experience, you're more likely to pass the CTA than if you've just done one. And also they'll prioritize you based on if you've done both tracks or just one. So if you've done both tracks... Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, so it actually says... I did read it somewhere. I'll be able to cite somewhere, yeah. Okay. But it was quite interesting as well. So, you know, and that's kind of saying, well, maybe, the, you know, the system architect we are, is, is a little bit more developing. Um, but the CTA exam is not, though. CTA exam is quite high no, level. No, no, absolutely. Broad. Very high level, yeah. Yeah, so if you take decide to take... Well, now you can't, but in the past you were able to take the CTA exam without going through these the two tracks that we have now. Yep. But in the past, if you don't have uh, development experience or you haven't done development in the last 10 years or whatever, it didn't matter because what oh, was yeah. more, what's more important is experience, communication, and a broader understanding of all of the different components in the Salesforce ecosystem. Yep. That would take you a long way yep. uh, to passing the CTA exam. So it's that time again now, Anoop. It's your tip this month. So what are your tips so Francis, yep. I have 
quite a, I have a lot of tips for Lightning Web Components. Right. And I think it's going to be, it looks like it could be another podcast worth of wow, yeah, tips. So why don't we stop here for this podcast? And create a whole new podcast all about web lightning web components. I think that sounds a great idea. So we've given everybody a teaser now to what's coming <laughs> up. <laughs> so I think that's it then. We'll end this podcast here. Well, until next time, so long from Thank Francis. You. Bye from Anu. Thanks for listening. And see you next month. See you.